well as stars. In stellar space, there is gas and dust, sometimes glowing in starlight, sometimes dark, obscuring what is behind them. Stars, gas, dust, all moving in apparent chaos. Until a generation ago, it seemed indecipherable. Astronomers are now filling in the details of a pattern so vast that everyday ideas of distance and time cannot encompass it. If we could move with the freedom of a god so that a million years pass in a second, and if we went far enough past the nearest suns, beyond the star clouds and nebulae, in time they would end and as if moving out from behind a curtain, we would come to an endless sea of night. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Well, man, this synchronicity is going to uh, blow your mind. Um. This is so great. Universe was a film that was made for the National Film Board of Canada. So he poached three people off of that team to come to come work off 2001 uh, including douglas rain which is great (laughs) but i wasn't familiar with colin low does that ring a bell he was the director and then he also stole one of the cinematographers too so that was was the last guy i was trying to track down here Wally Gentleman, which is a wonderful name. You gotta be kidding me. I was gonna talk about I've got a note about that. Seriously. Jupiter and Beyond stuff, yeah. Yeah, and Kubrick was just so blown away by like the insanely realistic, high quality animations and uh, kind of like cinematography they used to show terrestrial worlds that had never really been photographed or yeah. you know anything like that and uh up until that point everything was just real shoddy kind of matte paintings and bad models being kind of you know clunkily flown through dark backgrounded i just thought that was that's super neat so that one came out in 1960. 1960. so had a little bit of time to stew um that's crazy yeah so the director the narrator and one of the cinematographers so it's like yeah gonna go ahead and have to have all that yes please that's awesome i'm glad you thought of that and more synchronicity why gentlemen (laughs) well uh universe is also one of the most widely distributed educational films ever that's huge of course i mean educational films you know they're not not gonna be getting those major box office numbers by any 
stretch, but the amount of influence that that short film had. I mean, if that director hadn't made the decisions that he did on that, what, what would Hal sound like? What would those backgrounds look oh, like? No. Yeah, would Stanley have even done a sci-fi film? Right? Was he not going to be inspired because that was the whole World's Fair? Five hundred million miles out from the sun, the giant planet Jupiter, ruling twelve moons. Jupiter, seen here from one of its moons, is larger than all the other planets put together. Its atmosphere is a thousand miles deep, a poisonous mixture of methane gas, ammonia, and hydrogen, which at the bottom must have the density of water. Here, under the enormous pressure of the atmosphere, a human being would be crushed beyond recognition. This was like him seeing an application and being like, oh, oh, yes. Oh, I could do so much with this, please. I also didn't clock this being a weird thing, but it was also one of the, 2001 was one of the first films that didn't have like a, a credit scroll at the front end. Oh. Apparently that was pretty uncommon for the time. You know, they usually had a, the heavy hitters up front, you know? Yeah. Big block type. If anything, it would just say the end and no end credits. Yeah. This kind of, I don't know, was a, a strange evolution of, you know, credits that we have now. We should do a whole thing on credits at some point. Yeah. <laughs> that would actually be kind of cool. It would be cool because there's so many discrepancies and so many stories about how the people got credited what they did and how people yeah. that didn't get those credits got pissed off. Yeah. Sometimes a strange apparition appears in the sky, a comet. Like a planet, a comet orbits the sun, but it is only a loose conglomeration of ice and dust, invisible, until its head comes close enough to the sun, whose rays then excite it into fluorescence and push away from the head a vaporous tail, which may become a million miles long. What we're talking about is the great Canadian film universe. This is a 1960 short documentary that came out as an educational piece. Uh, this is one of the first very realistic portrayals of our solar system and the universe around us. So, uh, this came out in 1960, which, if that's any indication of what kind of optical you know, power we had in the sky at that point, it was pretty dismal um, to get the realism of the terrestrial planets, the swirling clouds of galaxies and lighting effects that had to happen to pull this all together really caught the eye of Stanley Cooper. To think about the fact Roman Croitor and Colin Lowe and Tom Daly as the producer, the decisions that they made, not only in putting together the film the way they did and the artistic choices they made, but the people that they hired to do it, which of course made it turn out the way they did, because those three of those people to then go on and work on 2001 and for the final product to then inspire Stanley enough to, as you said before we were recording, maybe be the final 
straw that stuck in the back of his mind about pursuing the science fiction thing because it was going to be such a big undertaking that this may have been the the really the, the seed of visions to come beyond the appearance of starshine and moonbeam what will the first men to leave the earth find enough is now known that we can in imagination journey into these spaces but narrated by Douglas Rain and that music that we hear in the clip is by Eldon Rathburn, which is interesting because it's kind of similar to Star Trek, the, the original, and it's just something about the intervals and that melody. Now, listening to the back-to-back as we do here, if, if there's... Oh, yeah, you'd have to think there would be some kind of uh, of an inspiration there. It may be unconscious, but... Um, it, it could be, but, I mean, if we look at it, I mean, Star Trek, the original series, debuted sometime in, like, the mid to late 60s, I think. Yeah, right? What is it? It's like 68 to 69? I mean, 66 it, to 69, maybe? Something like that. So, I mean, that, totally, and... From what I could tell, this was one of the most widely distributed educational film productions at all. So there's a pretty good chance that it had a wide viewership. They were obviously using a lot of experienced crew members, you know, when it comes to production value. So we've got major orchestral components, great narration, like we were talking about with Douglas Rain. I mean, so that really had to inspire a lot of the probably younger filmmakers and potentially made its way into mainstream art as well. If we looked more deeply into space, leaving behind us the Earth and the whole of our solar system, and traveled at the speed of light It would take four years before we came to even the closest of the billions of suns scattered through stellar space. The 9000 series has a perfect operational record. Just a moment. Just a moment. The idea that we even have Douglas Rain as the voice of Hal, the effect of that panning across the planets is a similar use Stanley had for the slow pans across the moon. The strong background of the technical crew, particularly Dennis Gilson and Wolf Koenig, the work of Colin Lowe, he was like a pioneer in Canada. He was called the Gentleman Genius, apparently, which is what a, what a nice way to be referred to. I love that. It's like the legacy. Gentleman Thief, the Gentleman Genius. <laughs> exactly. He's, and, um, he's the cat I, burglar. I think he he played no small part in actually creating one of the first IMAX films mm. that debuted at a um, a later World's Fair. Is a, that in the Labyrinth? Yes. Okay. Cool. Yes, I was reading about that because it was that was like a multi-screen kind of similar to what Douglas Trumbull was going to be trying to do with right. the rides and stuff. 
again, you got the same team, Tom Daly, Roman Croitort, Colin Lowe. This is a dream team, and and Lowe himself was nominated for six Oscars. Five BAFTAs, uh, he won five BAFTAs, excuse me, and he won eight awards over the course of his career at the Cannes Film Festival, so, I mean, yeah, he I mean, took home eight prizes at Cannes. He didn't have enough shelves to put all these awards up. I mean, it was... Yeah. He had to build a new wing on the house. He was part of the first experimental multi-screen production in The Labyrinth, which helped you know lead the creation of the IMAX. And he co-directed the first IMAX 3D production as well. Ooh. So this happened much later. This was in Expo 86 in Vancouver. Hmm. And uh, the name of this was called Transitions. Um, Interesting. Yeah. We got Colin Lowe. We got Douglas Rain and Wally. Wally Gentleman. beautiful <laughs> <laughs> i mean what a name isn't that great it's one of the best names i've oh, ever heard who wouldn't want to be wally gentleman wally gentleman working with the gentleman genius colin low you've got two gentlemen of the road this is true and guess who wanted them all for himself <laughs> the brash boy from the bronx Vincent Labruto is quoted as saying, As the film unspooled, Kubrick watched the screen with rapt attention, while a panorama of the galaxies swirled by, achieving the standard of dynamic visionary realism that he was looking for. 
achieving the standard of dynamic visionary realism he was looking for. These images were not flawed by the shoddy matte work, obvious animation, and poor miniatures typically found in science fiction films. Universe proved that a camera could be a telescope to the heavens. As the credits rolled, Kubrick studied the names of the magicians who created the images. Colin Lowe, Sidney Goldsmith, and Wally Gentleman would all be poached from the film. Douglas Douglas Rain. Rain. (laughs) 300 prints of the film were ordered by NASA. Yeah, they probably, you know, would run those through their ambassadors and have them go out to public schools and expos and things like that to show it. Before you had great ambassadors like Chuck Schlem out there everywhere, you have these films, which at the time, I mean, what a great and unique draw, you know, not not just a film strip, a moving film that you can watch as an education. Oh, yeah. That's huge. Our sun with its planets, is near the edge of one such galaxy, the rim of which we see dimly as the Milky Way. The galaxies are the birthplace and graveyard of the stars. Here, gas contracts into knots, becomes hot, and flares into the life of a sun, sometimes forming with it planets sometimes planets which must be suitable for life. And here too, the stars finally consume themselves and collapse into cold, dark dwarfs. So according to page 71 of The Great Space Odyssey by Michael Benson, if you don't have it by now, Lowe's visual effects collaborator Wally Gentleman had filled tanks of clear paint thinners with suspended inks and oil paints, filming them under bright lighting at high frame rates, a technique that when projected at regular speed seemed to convey with a previously unknown realism the floating majesty of a cosmos illuminated by flaring stars and incandescent ionized hydrogen gas. For Kubrick, who'd suffered through endless hours of cheesy animations and badly done mat work, the Canadian film was a revelation. He ran the universe again and again, studying it closely, and wrote down Lowe's and gentlemen's names, though he'd not yet noted the film's narrator, Toronto-based actor Douglas Rain. You know, and that's an interesting thing. It's right under your nose sometimes, and and he had to maybe absorb that voice so many times in his subconscious that that it became a, a voice that could be a narrator for him. That's my hell. My mission responsibilities range over the entire operation of the ship, so I am constantly occupied. Also on page 96, kind of the the rest of the story here, when they're working on Space Station 5, the wheel... It says, have been attempting to recruit Colin Lowe and Wally Gentleman, the team behind Universe, but Lowe, who was manifestly uninterested in working with the director, warned his colleague that Kubrick will, quote, walk all over you with hobnailed boots on, unquote. <laughs> Finally, Gentleman agreed warily to take charge of the film's effects, but he wouldn't sign a contract. After Lowe's warning, a bit of disconnect existed between Kubrick and Gentleman from the beginning. So that's interesting. I wonder if that residue may have prevented the kind of communication that 
I don't know. It's just interesting how those things work out because in the long term, he wasn't the one, you know, cosmically meant to do those effects, the ships and the slit scan, if you will, because that was obviously Douglas Trumbull who was destined to take on, you know, that job. But it's interesting that Wally Gentleman had this little disconnect at the beginning with Kubrick, which may have affected their working relationship and what his purview was going to be on the film, which turned out to be, though, pretty much what he did on Universe, it looks like, which is those those background those passes of the planets not the location helicopter shoots rather but no like the um i think the one they did with mercury where it was like that real barren kind of i think they had two moving parts they had like the background and foreground crossing each other with that kind of stark terrestrial rocky regolith yeah that was that was pretty cool On the surface of Mercury, the temperature is hot enough to melt lead. For one face of it is turned perpetually to the sun, only 36 million miles away. Wally Gentleman is all over this book. I mean, he he's involved in, in everything, like with the rest of the, the team, you know, with, mm. with Colin Cantwell and Trumbull and everybody. What Wally Gentleman was already experimenting on for this uh, was to change the color temperatures, which would then change the colors in the exposure on the color film. You're shooting on, you know, the, the color <laughs> 65, which then you can expose so that the colors then change their tint entirely. Apparently, Brian Loftus was also doing this at the same time, and he showed this to Andrew Birkin. Well, I think what happened was is that Andrew Birkin ended up kind of super spearheading all this, taking this all to Stanley and saying, you know, these are the options that we have. What do you think about? It? Well, they tried it. They did some footage. Great. Well, we Con Peterson was already working on landscape paintings, so let's try working on some landscape flyovers. Can we go over, you know, the desert or someplace that could be exposed in a different color and look like, you know, yeah. another planet? Andrew Birkin went to Scotland to get this footage and, and he went and drilled the camera on the floor of the helicopter and he went there with the Scottish cameraman the Scottish cameraman decided that he wasn't going to go up so it ended up just being uh, Andrew Birkin up there snapping away his belly just filming Scottish landscapes to be these really because it's interesting you do the Highlands have that forced perspective though don't they where kind of like Southern California the, the shapes of the landscapes and the shadows of them don't quite line up these, so they kind of uh, make with the highlands. Really large objects kind of seem not large and vice versa. And vice, kind of, yeah, that forced perspective, hmm. like a drop shift lens does in photography, yeah. uh, which is great for when you're you're messing with the colors and what texture is what. You can't tell because it's that rock, is that a fuzzy thing, is that... Yeah, you could overexpose the trees and get some really wild effects out of mm. it. Meanwhile, Wally Gentleman working on the other big revelation of the universe film, which was Colored Dyes, filmed at high speeds and high temperatures. And while you were checking this out with Wally Gentleman, did you come across anything that showed him working with the model ships? In 1968, he built model spaceships for Kubrick. Trouble noticed from the beginning, apparently. Friction had been building... This is page 132 of Space Odyssey. Friction had been building inexorably between Gentleman and Kubrick ever since they arrived in England. 
The former was alarmed by what he saw as a needless waste of resources, money, and time, and critical of what he saw as the director's pig-headed insistence on testing techniques gentlemen already knew wouldn't work. The latter was increasingly irritated at his collaborator's resistance to his ideas and what he regarded as a know-it-all manner. While he was a very scientific, linear, very elegant, very gentlemanly... <laughs> Very erudite. <laughs> very <laughs> I mean, really, does it really, guys? Come on, Doug. <laughs> very well-trained and experienced guy, Trumbull recalled. And Kubrick was very freewheeling. Whatever everybody's doing, I'm just doing the opposite kind of thing. And I think it just kind of rubbed Wally the wrong way, end quote. For, for his part, Trumbull was honored to be working with one of the visual innovators behind Universe, which he'd seen as graphics films, and which had been screened from again immediately on his arrival at Borumwood, almost like a form of freshman orientation. Gentleman noted with approval that Trumbull was absolutely unintimidated by the director. <laughs> Doug would sort of wander onto the set, and with all the ingenuity and ingeniousness of a young man, would state exactly what he was thinking at the time. And this kind of nettled Stanley to begin with, but he gradually got used to it. But Doug was really working from the strong point of authority because his work was so very good. And I think that he made the greatest contribution, finally, to the film of anybody. Which may or may not have something to do with why he is not credited as visual effects supervisor, and instead mm. Stanley Kubrick is. Also a reason they didn't talk for several years. Yikes. Uh, is there some reason that your work on, on 2001 isn't mentioned in your studio biography? Well, that's a little personal story. I had a little problem with the studio about that, and I've had a problem with Stanley Kubrick about that, because uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick has tended to want to deny that I contributed to 2001. You know, he personally took the Academy Award for Best Special mm -hmm. Effects that year, when in fact three of us were uh, potential nominees. The four of us were potential you, Wally Beavers, Con Pedersen. Uh, there was uh, oh. me, Wally Beavers, Con Pedersen, and Tom Howard were the four special photographic effects supervisors. The Academy only allows three statuettes and would not break the rule and make it four. So Kubrick decided to take the award for himself and we didn't get anything. And ever since that time it's been a sort of bone of contention between us because I tend to say, I worked on 2001, and I worked with these other guys, and we did these special effects. But the press tends to say, Doug Trumbull, who did the special effects for 2001, says blah, blah. And then Stanley Kubrick reads that, and he calls back and says, Douglas, you didn't do all the special effects. I did them, and Khan did them, and well. And I say, but I didn't say that. But it's, a, it's, it's such a bone of contention, and Stanley Kubrick has pull at MGM. And when there was a discussion of including 2001 in my credits, Apparently, Stanley Kubrick exerted pressure at MGM, and they pulled that out of the press kit. And I've been very, very angry about it. You can't change history. It's not the Soviet Union. Politics, as always. You know, it, it sounds like you're right. It sounds like what's happened here is you got it all aboard, you know, doot, doot. everybody's working on everything on this team, yeah. probably, because there's so much to do. And everything they're doing is non-standard. I mean, it's all bleeding edge cinematography so there's not really a specialist for each department yeah you're gonna have all these quote-unquote engineers running back and forth between pieces and helping each other and tackling different issues you know through different perspectives i miss stanley a lot i, I it never occurred to me that stanley would would die that, that i'd have to be on this planet without stanley and particularly that we'd have to be in the year of 2001 without Stanley to enjoy the fruits of having made that movie.
1964 short film, To the Moon and Beyond, was where Douglas Trumbull kind of cut his teeth on um, animation. And it seems like that love of spacefaring visuals, that was definitely like a through line for him to bring to the table for the film. And yeah. I think he probably was able to overrule <laughs> yeah. other decisions that may have been tossed out as far as how to actually um, portray some of these sequences. I called Khan. I said, Khan, you know, what, what's with this Kubrick guy? You know, could I get a job on that movie or something? And he said, well, I, you know, I'm under a confidentiality agreement and I, I really can't do this. Uh, and then I called another friend of mine. He said, well, you know, Stanley's phone number is actually penciled on the corner of the bulletin board in the office. Uh, and if you found that, you could call him yourself. So I did that. One of my first tasks on 2001 as a young man, I was probably maybe 24, uh, starting to detail these miniatures and trying to make them look photorealistic, even though they were just fiberglass models with not, not much detail. And we started figuring out how to put detail and, and painting. And actually, since I was an illustrator, I was actually painting with my airbrush right on the model to create different panels of texture and brightness and reflection and uh, trying to make it look uh, as big as we possibly could. And then I got involved in shooting some of these miniatures. Kubrick really got to like me and what I was able to do. And so I got into designing some of these shots like this. I would almost guess that Trumbull was, he was confident before he even had the credentials to back it up. Because yeah. people with that kind of innovation cannot reposition their work because of a critic. So, no, I, I would say he probably came in headstrong uh, I, to be a fly on the wall. <laughs> you tricked me again! That wasn't meant to be a wish! I only did what you said! Blow a raspberry! Not yet! I want to see what's going on! Yeah. Oh! 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 Damn flies! Oh, it's a water! Oh, oh. let's get out of this fly trap! to be a fly on. Thankfully, we do have a fly on the wall account. On page 345, it says, ruminating in the year 2001 about a certain lysergic character to Bowman's cosmic trip, <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke, an abstemious teetotaler, content for a lifetime to enjoy the projections of his own imagination, said he suspected some of its authors may have indulged themselves with certain mind-expanding substances while working on it. Asked about this, Trumbull was unequivocal. Were you guys ever, I mean, even rolling a reefer? <laughs> Never. You were too busy. Never. No, not too busy. You were straight. Straight as an arrow. And so was Kubrick. And we talked about it. Never. No. Not. Too busy. Asked further about that conversation, Trumbull recalled a fragment reminiscent of Kubrick's exchange with Polanski. Doug, Stanley, I've seen friends of mine lose their perspective. They've gone on this LSD trip and they come back and the effects are completely worn off, you would think, but their perspective on reality has shifted. I've had conversations with people who say, wow, this is such a trip, because they're looking at reflections in their pepper shaker. There's something that gets skewed. I guess 
I'm really square, but I don't ever want to get screwed up like that. I don't want to lose my perspective. This is hard fucking work. Stanley, I agree with you completely. I will never touch the stuff because I will lose my ability as a filmmaker to stay focused. It'll go off and I'm afraid. Huh. I'm afraid. You know, among the filmmakers who were supposedly taking it at the time, famously Federico Fellini. Wow. Say that three times. Alliteration, great. Said when he was asked, yeah, I, I dropped acid and I couldn't tell any difference. <laughs> I didn't notice anything. Uh, Which... Uh. That's, that's probably, interesting. probably true. It makes sense. You know, he was, and that's true of, of some artists, you know, who experimented where, you know, their, their brain is already so much on that level. Yeah, that already on the, the lysergic character yeah. or whatever it is. resistance was from an artistic point of view a little bit like you know resistance of some artists uh, or comedians actors or writers to go to psychotherapy for fear of losing their edge or not being funny anymore hmm. you don't want to know how you do it you don't want to concentrate too hard on how you're tying your shoe because I mean, they're obviously aware obviously that it wasn't just in the marketing campaign obviously in the making of the movie they are aware of this and they're aware of the time they're a part of yes I agree. I agree. And I think Douglas Trumbull wanted it to be half and half kind of a an absolute dropping of reality and, you know, an ascension mm-hmm. or a transcendence of consciousness, you know, through the Stargate sequence. Mm-hmm. But at the same time... Like, this film was already just taking its own lead as far as composition and production and yeah, didn't really seem to care, um, maybe other than artistically, you know, just mm. wanting it to be captivating in that moment, unlike anything else that's been portrayed. I had to watch the dream last night I'm not ready to fight for life. I had too much to dream. Thirty days into the run, the studio was really getting ready to pull the movie and throw it away and just abandon the whole thing and say, "Well, nice try, but let's move on." And uh, the story I heard was that some theater owners, operators, called into MGM and said. Before you pull this movie, there's something happening here. There's a bunch of young people. They're sitting down in the front row, and there were three of them yesterday. There's six of them this morning. I know there's going to be a lot more tonight, and, and it kept building. There was a kind of a whole other wave of interest 
in the kind of psychedelic movement and people, you know, smoking a little pot before the screening. And a whole new audience started showing up in that month. It is the gassiest, grooviest, swingingest, trippiest movie you've ever seen. It's Otto Preminger's psychedelic trip. The Living End. It's a movie that uh, kids will like. A while laughing. They turn on the older generation, get them high. Can you imagine Nacho Marx being God? Get up. The only thing that matters is with who you do. Skidoo, skidoo. The only thing that matters is with who. Skidoo. From Clavia Space, this is Brad. I'm Wes. Signing off. Skidoo, skidoo. Bye-bye. Between the one and three, there is a two. I think this movie is going to turn on the country. It'll make you love better. It'll make you feel better. And it's even legal.